All right. Uh, John Hume is joining us. Um, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and, John, you want me to go ahead and get started with Hebrews and uh, dive into experiencing God, or are you ready to go? Uh, you start. All right. So does anybody remember where we left off in chapter two in Hebrews? There was a, a, a warning, um, one of the one of five admonitions in Hebrews that the writer gives the, the Christians, the Jewish Christians in Asia Minor. And it's, it's one of the, the, and the warnings actually, if you pay attention as we work our way through Hebrews, the warnings get more severe as they go along. So what was the warning in chapter two, verse one? neglect don't drift and don't neglect a great salvation so the the warning in chapter two is not to drift when we get all the way to chapter 10 the warning is going to be do not deny the word of god hebrews 10 26 is is one of the most uh puzzling and scary verses in all of the Bible to me. It says, if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the word of God, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. And so the writer of Hebrews, who is trying to give a cautionary tale about um, uh, giving up this this new faith, this this Christianity that they've discovered. And remember, Hebrews was written somewhere in the late 60s, 67, 68. And it was a long way away from Rome where Nero was uh, creating havoc uh, right before he died in 68. Likely, Nero executed Paul and Peter somewhere 68, 67, 68 right about the same time Hebrews was written. Now, we don't think Hebrews was later than that because it makes no mention of the destruction of the temple. And if the writer of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians and their beloved temple in Jerusalem would have been destroyed by the Romans, I'm guessing that he would have said something about it. And so we kind of place the date of Hebrews somewhere in the late 60s, about the same time as Matthew was written. And so uh, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews doesn't show evidence of being familiar with the Gospels. And so we kind of assume that they were written around about the same time, or at least the Gospels had not been circulated uh, fully just yet. Put a pin in that for later, because in this passage of scripture, that's going to come back and be necessary for us to talk about. So in chapter two, the warning was, don't drift. Don't, don't erode. Don't, don't just fade towards some substitute for uh, your faith in Christ. Don't, don't try to go back to the old ways. Don't try to remember how 
how tangible it felt for you to offer sacrifices every day and 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 feel like if you shed the blood of a goat or a bull or a lamb or a dove, if if you broke the body and shed the blood, you somehow pleased God. And that felt tangible. That felt like something you could do to earn God's love. And the writer of Hebrews is telling us over and over again, there is nothing you can do to earn God's love. All you can do is to receive the wow. great love that he has for us. So it's Zoom. Something about the, Zoom doesn't want to The love it. that was so great that he oh, shed his blood yep. for us. Robert, go ahead and mute. So in the great love that uh, was demonstrated to us, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, we haven't done enough. We haven't done anything. We we cannot earn this great salvation. And the warning against drifting was to neglect that. So the writer of Hebrews starts off with this warning, don't drift. And then he returns to his comparison that Jesus is greater than the angels. Now, you, you remember Sunday I said that this was a very specific instruction because the Hebrews thought that angels delivered messages. And so uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying that the message that the angels delivered was of a Messiah who would come. The message that Jesus delivered is that he is the message. He is the Messiah. So the message of Jesus in the person of Jesus is far superior to anything the angels might tell us. So he leaves off in chapter 2, remind you again of uh, verse 17 in chapter 2, where he says that, that he is the great propitiation for our sins. He's the the great substitute for our sins. Last uh, verse, um, verse 17, he is the merciful, the faithful high priest in the service of God to make uh, propitiation, to to, uh, appeal for the souls of the people. And so then he begins chapter three with another comparison he's going to eventually tell us that not only is Jesus greater than the the angels, he's also superior to Moses. Now, why would he mention Moses? Go ahead. Um, Before you get into chapter three, I don't have the word propitiation, although I've heard it in the past. Is that synonymous with atonement? Yes. Okay. Yes. Thank you. It's the same word. And it, it uh, propitiation has to do with an acceptable sacrifice. And I, I love that. Uh, Nicole, are you in the New International? Uh, no, I'm in the um, uh, New uh, Living Translation. Okay. So the word atonement uh, has to do with the activity of, of, um, uh, placing the sins of the people on an animal. And um, if you'll remember the, the little tidbit, I, I may have shared this, I may not, 
uh, Jerusalem is right on the edge of the Kidron Valley. And uh, off of the edge of the Temple Mount at one time was sort of a, a, a gangplank, um, a, a, a plank that led to nowhere, except off the end of the plank was a, a long fall into the Kidron Valley. And the, the high priest every year uh, on the Day of Atonement would symbolically place the sins of the people on the back of a goat and then march that goat off the end of that bridge, off the end of oh. the plank, and he would Jeez. fall to his death. Oh. What word do we get from that little activity? Scapegoat. Scapegoat. So he was the scapegoat to receive the sins of the people on his back. And it was uh, the symbolically on the day of atonement, he atoned for the sins of the people by shedding the blood and breaking the body of a goat. So the scapegoat comes from that, um, that word picture. So he leaves us in chapter two with a reminder of why Jesus is superior to the angels, that the propitiation for the sins of the people was placed on his back. Okay. Then in chapter three, he starts a comparison to Moses. Now, in the same way that the angels were thought by the Jewish people to bring messages, what did the Jewish people think about Moses? They thought he was their greatest prophet, they, the, the lawgiver, the, the, the one that God trusted enough to, to meet him at Sinai and, and give him the, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the, the law. God trusted Moses, and Moses was, for the most part, faithful. Uh, he had some slip-ups, but uh, his, uh, his, his faithfulness, his obedience was thought to elevate him above any other prophet in the Jewish um, uh, thought. And so for the writer of Hebrews to, to begin to tell us that Jesus is superior to Moses, he, he, he uses the analogy of the house, that Moses was part of the house, uh, he will go on to say that we Christians are part of the house. But we never worship the building as much as we give credit to the one who builds it. So we can look at Project Main Street and go, this is a wonderful building. But we can also look at all the, the architects and the designers and, and all the people on our building committee that had the vision for something like that. And we say, well, well, it's a great building, but it's greater because of the people who had the vision to build it. And, and so the writer of Hebrews starts off uh, long ago in many ways. He starts off chapter one, chapter two, he starts off with the word therefore, chapter three, he starts off with the word therefore. So therefore in chapter three, refers back to the comparison with the angels in chapter two. Therefore, in chapter two, refers back to the Old Testament quotations in chapter one. So he's building a case 
for the superiority of Christ so that the people don't lose heart. And so he begins chapter three by saying, therefore, holy brothers. So again, we're reminded that this is written to Christians. You who share in the heavenly calling, you are part of the house. Consider Jesus. On Sunday, I'm going to spend a minute with that word consider. Uh, my father is just was one of my heroes. And I remember a little exchange that he and I had when uh, I knew that if I graduated high school, he was going to help me get a car. But when I was uh, a sophomore in high school, I decided that I had been without a car long enough. So I said to my father, would you consider letting me have my car early? My father said, consider it considered. <laughs> and that was the end of the discussion. <laughs> the word that's used here is not a drive-by consideration. It, it indicates meditate on Jesus, ponder Jesus, give great thought to Jesus. Don't uh, let anything escape your, uh, your mind about Jesus. Consider it. It has a lot of weight here. So consider him. He is the apostle. This is the only time in the New Testament that Jesus is called an apostle. Uh, consider Jesus, the apostle, the one who reveals the gospel and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him appointed, and here's the comparison, just as Moses was faithful. But now he says that Jesus is worthy of more glory because the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. That's a direct reference to Numbers chapter 12 and verse 7. If you're jotting down notes in your Bible, that's almost a direct quote from Numbers 12, 7, that, the, that God is the builder of this house. So uh, I, I'm going to save a little bit for Sunday so that John can dive into experiencing God. But look at the last uh, verse in that first section, verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So it's not like an Airbnb where we just go to occupy the house and the owner is somewhere else. The, the owner of the house is the son. And, and, and what, what the writer of Hebrews here is doing is to make sure that the Jewish people and that we understand that he is equating the divinity of Christ with the divinity of God. He, he, I and the Father are one. What, what was considered blasphemy when Jesus said it, the writer of Hebrews is going, we got to get this. Christ is superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses because he is God. He was there in the beginning. So if God is the builder of the house, Christ is the builder of the house. How much more blessed are we to be part of that which Christ has built? 
and then he starts the next section and I'll spend some time on this uh, uh, Sunday, but he says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Now, again, he's making sure the Jewish people understand that he is equating Jesus with God, therefore superior to Moses. When Moses was leading the people, and he went up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. What was going on at the base of the mountain while he was away? They were crafting as a substitute for what, Bill? For God. So Moses has been gone a long time. I can't see him. I can't touch him. I can't hear him. How are we going to know uh, if we can trust God or not? So we have to, in human effort, don't miss this, with human effort, we have to create something that we can touch, that we can control, that we can mold. We have to create a God that we can touch. I can't trust God when I can't see him. And I hope we get that message Sunday that I am as guilty as the next person of going, God, I just need to see you at work. What do you need me to do to help you? What, what do you, what do you need me to create in order to help you do your work? Because I can't see you. I can't touch you. I, I don't know if I can trust you to, uh, to fix my uh, rent problem or my family problem or my money problem or my relationship problem. I don't know if I can trust you because I can't see you. And so why don't I do something with human effort and, and I'll just manufacture something. I'll make my own golden calf out of my effort, my abilities, my skill, my talent, my ideas. And what John is going to tell us in just a minute is that's that's the whole point of experiencing God is that every time we try to say, God, you take the day off, I'm going to do this, then we are not watching where God is working. We're trying to do our work and get God to bless it. And he says that when we do that, he describes us as having hard hearts. And the uh, what the reader of Hebrews would understand here is that in the Old Testament, the story that he's referring to was in uh, the scene where the the ground opened up and and Moses was told, it's because of the unbelief of the people, an entire generation is going to pass. They are going to die in the wilderness. They will never enter the place of promise. The writer of Hebrews calls it the place of rest. They will never enter that. And if you Jewish people who are reading this in the first century, if you Christian people who are reading this in the 21st century, if you insist on trying to do all of your own stuff and then somehow ask God to bless it, you can't enter the place of promise. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 said, 
faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is, is counting as sure those promises that God has given us that are still in the future. And it is the evidence of things not yet seen. And so in Hebrews chapter 3, he's setting up the superiority of Christ, but also is giving us the, the second warning. In chapter 2, don't drift. In chapter 3, don't harden your hearts. Because if your hearts are hard, it means that you're trying to create your own version of God and not trusting that God is working even when we can't see him. So chapter three is our subject on Sunday morning. The title of the sermon is Protect This House. And so we will have a good time with that on Sunday morning. John, I'm going to mute and let you take us with experiencing God.